I recorded what was supposed to be a one-hour podcast with Chris Schulte, a seasoned medical malpractice defense attorney. Time flew by, and this one-hour discussion expanded into a two-hour discussion. He provided so much useful information for our listeners, I did not want to hit the stop button. So we will split the podcast into two segments. This is the first of the two segments. Welcome to the Medical Liability Minute, and today we will be speaking with Chris Schulte. He's a medical malpractice defense attorney in Florida, so I would consider him to be one of the good guys. A little bit in the way of background, he received his Bachelor's of Science and his law degree from the University of Florida, so I believe that makes him a Gator, but I'll check on that in just uh, a minute. Uh, professionally, Chris was selected into membership in the American Board of Trial Advocates, a national association of experienced trial lawyers and judges dedicated to preservation and promotion of the civil jury trial right provided by the Seventh Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And speaking of the Constitution, uh, he's also a fellow of the ABOTA Foundation. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about that. Actively involved in organizing the Ta Tampa chapter's annual Otis Lecture to celebrate Constitution Day and inspire high school students to gain an appreciation of the U.S. Constitution. So I'm betting even money that he can tell us and recite all of the amendments that are out there right now by heart. Uh, finally, he's board certified by the National Board of Trial Advocacy and has been selected by his peers for inclusion in the Best Lawyers in America and Florida Trend Magazine's Legal Elite in the area of MedMal litigation. Also named a Florida super lawyer by Florida Super Lawyers Magazine and one of Tampa Bay's top lawyers by Tampa Bay Business Journal and the Tampa Bay Magazine. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Welcome, Chris Schulte. Thank you, Dr. Siegel. I appreciate the opportunity. Looking forward to the conversation we'll have today. So we've had um, several clients in common. They're, they're members in our organization at Medical Justice and you've um, you've been on the uh, defense end trying to help these members in very challenging situations. And I'd like to open with potentially misconceptions. Uh, what do doctors think they know about lawsuits but are entirely wrong or mostly wrong? Well, I, I think one of the, uh, the largest misconceptions, um, and that depends on specialty for a large part, but I think across all all specialties, physicians expect these things to get over with tomorrow. And I'm being a, a little bit facetious, obviously, is that you know they they've gotten a claim, and either a they expect me to make a phone call to opposing counsel, um, and then everything will be resolved. That opposing counsel will see the light of day and decide to you know drop the claim, or at least not pursue. You know, the pre-suit investigation period any further, uh, or alternatively, once the complaint is filed, that you know we're going to be going to trial in a couple of weeks, and the case will have been resolved, right, wrong, or differently, within the next you know month, month and a half, and at that point in time, it's over. Um, obviously, that is certainly not the case, and I think one of the other large misconceptions. You know, that I see in most specialties across the board um, is that it's really not going to be a very time intensive process for, for the physician. Um, you know, obviously I've been, I've been doing this for quite some time. I think I'm on my 26th year now and, and I grew up with a, a physician. My dad's a general surgeon, retired now. So just by, you know, the, the process of uh, growing up with, with a, someone in the medical profession, I've, I've learned some of this, but there's no way in heck that I know the, you know, the intimate details of medicine, and they expect that I do. And a lot of this process is case by case is trying to get educated on, on the particular facts of the case and the medicine. 
and obviously the best expert that I have and the most accessible expert that I have in the case is certainly going to be my, my client. Um, and I don't, I don't think that they anticipate the amount of time that they need to invest, unfortunately, to assist me with, with, a, with a really, really good defense. Um, so I think those are probably the two largest. You know, the, the, the timing issue, how long it takes for the wheels of justice to grind, um, it's often been said the wheels of justice grind slowly, almost like a glacier. Um, most doctors are used to seeing a problem presented before them, and it has a, a crisp, crisp solution that can be solved often quickly, and they're hoping that will translate into the legal world, meaning that if you could just have all the facts in front of you in short order, the only logical conclusion would be that a particular case has no merit. It must go away. But that's not real. First of all, all the facts are never in front of you up front. There are always messy little details. And it's rare that there is a perfect case. There's Most cases are imperfect. And you have to play the hand that you're dealt. And I think um, by virtue of the background physicians have, they they do assume that things will move much more quickly uh, than they do. So I would agree with you. That is a shock to most doctors. And I would even add, um, we have one member um, who has a case still ongoing related to a medical event that happened in 1999. So that's 20 years ago. We're talking about a case from last century is still going on. Now, there are a lot of details, and this case has been appealed up and down, so there are, there are reasons why this is a very unique case, but it's probably not, it's probably not the outlier, correct? Well, yeah, I, I, mean, I, I thought I mean, 99 kind of strikes me as, as a bit unusual, and it certainly sounds like an outlier, but not too far outlier. I mean, the, the oldest case that I have in my case list, especially at a trial in October, is a 2000 and late 10, 2011 case. Yeah. Um, and this will be the first time that that we are going to be in front of the judge in, in the courthouse. So, yeah, I mean, there's a. It would be nice if this process were a linear one, uh, but the same set of facts, the same type of medicine, same alleged negligence. Each case is going to be different because m most of the times I'm going to have different players involved, um, you know, from a plaintiff to the physician. Uh, and, and certainly the attorneys, and each one of them brings a different life experience or a different life into the process that you know may delay the case even further. You know, babies come on board, people get sick, uh, judges go in and out of the system, mortgage foreclosure crises that that bog down the system. You know, there's any number of things that you know if I were to have the same case with the same physician, it, you know, that case is not probably going to take the same amount of time. Uh, if it's with a different plaintiff's attorney, simply because of the things that I mentioned. Um, so it it does take time. It is frustrating for, for all involved because while I would like to rely on precedent from a prior case experience, um, while I can give a general feel and put it in the same kind of bucket, each case is not going to be the same from a, from a time standpoint. Let's talk a little bit about um, the role of the doctor in educating uh, his or her attorney, as well as educating the jury. I mean, while you may have had uh, similar cases in the past, for example, um, cutting the common bile duct um, is probably not an entirely uncommon case or failure to diagnose um, lung cancer, for example. But by and large, um, while not bringing an entirely blank slate to the table, you've got to come up to speed. And the person best um, positioned to bring you up to speed is the doctor defendant. Um, which which does entail spending a lot of time with you and also helping you find the best experts to present the case uh, to a jury. What do you think of that? Uh, no, no question about it, Dr. Siegel. The, uh, I mean, part of, you know, what I typically do, and I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm any different than my colleagues in, in, the, in the area. And I think one of the, one of the, First things I like to do, and I think probably the most important thing to do, is the minute I get a, a case assignment, if it's an insurance defense-related uh, referral uh, or, or a hospital setting, and then the physician's involved, the first thing I want to do is the minute I get that that call from the carrier or the hospitals, call that doc just to let them know, you know, I, I don't have time right now to, to go into detail about the case because I haven't seen the records, but I want to let you know that 
we got your back. I'm going to set up a meeting, come out there face-to-face so that they will have a comfort level with me and, and, and me them so that they know that I'm on their side on the same same team and then really explain that process in further detail with them to not apologize but kind of apologize to let them know that I'm going to be calling him more regularly than not um, because not only is it going to help me with the medicine but it's also going to help us allow us the physician and I to establish more of a rapport so that he trusts me with the information he's giving me and that um, you know, that he understands that I understand the stuff, I'm hopeful, and vice versa, that he he appreciates where I'm coming from um, and, you know, can trust me in whatever decisions I'm making procedurally in the case from a strategy standpoint or the information I'm providing him so that he can then make a decision, settle, uh, try the case, things along those lines. So um, obviously the, the physician is the defendant the client is the most invested in the case. Uh, I mean, they have obviously the most to lose. So um, they, and obviously there are exceptions to the rule. And I like to think that's few and far between. But the physician, um, I believe, wants to help me out because they understand that if they help me out, it's going to help them out. Right. You're on. You're on the same team for the most part. Now, in building trust, uh, one of one of your uh, jobs is to be skeptical, uh, to explain to the doctor up front that this is not a case about optimal care or ideal care, but it's a case as to whether the standard of care was breached, namely the floor. This is addressing the floor of what is considered reasonable care as opposed to aspirational optimal care. And it's not personal if you try and poke holes in the story that's there because ultimately that is what the other side will be doing best to understand all of the facts in a friendly environment, namely the attorney-client relationship, than to be surprised um, either in deposition or in a courtroom, correct? Yeah, it's, it's, I was just meeting with a physician this morning, uh, preparing him for a deposition tomorrow, actually that's one statement tomorrow, and it was actually the first time I met him. And one of the things that I typically tell the physician on first meeting them is that, you know, as, a, as attorneys, um, particularly defense attorneys, and I don't think this is unique to me, uh, maybe it is, I tend to look at the, the world as like the chicken little, the sky is falling, because i got to anticipate the worst, mm-hmm. because I'm preparing for the worst case scenario. I'm obviously hopeful that by, you know, thinking that things are that grim and that dire and that, you know, devil's advocating the case, that I'll be able to explain the holes explain away the problems and then focus on what are the good things about the care. So, I mean, the the point you made, Jeff, is, is very salient. I mean, that, I think that's how, at least me, that's how I learn best is poking holes in where I would see the case being weak from a layperson standpoint um, because I understand that, you know, we are trying these cases, at least here in the state of Florida, to uh, individuals whose only requirement is that they have a valid uh driver's license, mm-hmm. nothing more. Um, yeah. And you know, understanding that, you know, for example, a neurosurgeon who's been in school for half his life, learning the nuances of neurosurgery, it's hard pressed for me to, to believe that I'm going to be able to teach this jury the things that this physician knows in a period of six days, seven days, maybe three weeks, and have them understand it. So I got to simplify it, make it understandable, believable to that 18-year-old guy who drives a car, uh, as opposed to a 55, 60-year-old neurosurgeon who's been, who's been doing this for quite some time. And, and that is the art of storytelling. Hollywood does it all the time, which is how do you distill a story, keep someone's attention, um, stay close to the truth, but still persuade uh, people who will be controlling the the fate of one's outcome. I mean, it, it is a tall order. It's... Um... It's quite a job. Keeps you up at night. Uh, it is stressful, and but you know, it's at the end of the day, I'm. I like that I'm dealing with professionals. Uh, I'd like to think that they appreciate what I'm doing and understand that I know that you'll want to be there. And that's, and I think that's an, another problem. Is probably too strong of a term, uh, Dr. Siegel, to say that. But I think that's one of the issues that you know when I first come across and meet a physician, 
um, is that maybe that physician you know, has some level of distrust in me because they don't appreciate where I'm, where they don't perceive that I appreciate where they're coming from. I understand that they don't want to be sitting across the table from a person wearing a suit and tie, you know, mm-hmm. talking about a medical practice that someone is now being critical of and they've devoted their lives to that uh, in, in numerous years of, of education. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a tough thing to get through, um, but you can, that their rapport is very important. So once they appreciate that I know, or at least can empathize with them and get very close to empathizing with them, um, you know, they, I, I think that turns the table and they, they, they then have a level of, of, of trust in the attorney and then can appreciate where I'm coming from as the lawyer in trying to persuade, convince them that, you know, sometimes the case is not all about the medicine. Um, you know, and if, if we were trying this case or a case in front of three, four, six physicians, totally different presentation, totally different style. But I've, you know, I liken my role sometimes to a director in a stage production. And then, doctor, I need to make sure that you have your roll down. I need to make sure the expert has his roll down. You guys don't trade lines. I've got him to say his lines and her to say her lines. Just work with me. And this is going to be an excellent production at the end of this process. I mean, you also have yet another role above and beyond uh, stage producer and attorney, which may also be psychologist. Because for many physicians who have never been sued before, it's not just a um, – just a run-of-the-mill act where they'll have the day in court like if they were in an auto accident it's also an assault on their reputation and one of the challenges is to remind doctors that even if you made an egregious mistake for most physicians it's really just a snapshot and not a movie meaning that your whole life isn't um, being assaulted you're just it's only one event that's being assaulted i don't know that that uh, makes it any easier to swallow, but I think just getting that across um, to uh, to doctors early on is somewhat reassuring that even the best of the best will make an occasional mistake, and it's not a career ender. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, obviously there there are physicians, and each physician each physician that comes to us with each individual case individual case is obviously going to be different. But I I think you know. I've, I have a great deal of respect for um, the medical community. I obviously, haven't been raised by one, so I, I feel like I'm one of them. I just couldn't quite get through that chemistry class in biology <laughs> class in Florida. You didn't miss um, anything, by the way. We never used it in <laughs> chemistry, just yeah. so you know. <laughs> but this is, you know, this is the close I could get to that practice without actually putting on, you know, scrubs and grabbing a scalpel, um, so that the what you're referring to, the, the counselor aspect of, of our profession, you know, the counselors at law, um, attorneys at law and counselors, does go a long way in, again, establishing the rapport with the physician. And I think particularly younger, younger being all relative, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, their first case out of the box, and let's say they're, you know, 30, 31 years old, They've just been, uh, you know, pushed out of the medical school residency, maybe fellowship nest, and they get a claim, and they don't perceive there's going to be any light at the end of the tunnel. Hey, I've been sued. No one's going to hire me. I'm not going to have a job. They're going to bankrupt me. You know, so through the the personal experiences of having litigated these cases, I mean, you have to sit down and, you know, not really talk about the case in particular, but what the long-term ramifications may be and what they probably won't be and that you don't need to worry about those ancillary extraneous things. Let's just focus on the case. You know, the proverbialist, how do you eat 800 pound elephant one bite at a time? Once we get through it, then we'll start dealing with the privileging issues, the data bank with all else, the mm-hmm. hospital privilege, all the other stuff. We had one member who had just finished his residency training and started his first job as a hospitalist on July 1st, and he was um, he was taking care of a fairly challenging patient where the patient ended up having um, a bad outcome, um, and he was sued. Um, that was his first lawsuit, but he was sued related to his first day on the job, which you know, certainly was demoralizing to him. And I had to walk him off the ledge explaining that, hey, look, it's just bad timing. 
you know, even one in a million events happen in New York 10 times, uh, 10 times a day. So it was, um, you know, he wanted to quit. He, he didn't see um, a future. He believed that this would be the beginning of a long pattern. Uh, but actually, when I spoke with him, he was quite a talented physician, a smart diagnostician, a very caring, empathetic individual. I think what happened was, you know, like the rest of us, you it's lifelong learning and you continue training. And I wish I knew everything in the beginning, but uh, but I don't. And it's not easy being a hospitalist. They've got to be all things to all people in a uh, critical timeline. So, um, yeah, tough, tough timing for him. But um, but even if you get sued in the first five years of your practice, I think it can it can be demoralizing, and but it's likely not going to be a career ender. And I think that's where you can certainly play a role in in um, reinforcing that message from the very beginning. Yeah, what, what I you know doing these cases, Dr. Steven, you probably hear this too. Me frequently, might hear the comment, you know, it's just a cost of doing business, and I, and I get it. I mean, it it makes sense practically. It, the phrase kind of gets my nose bent out of shape. I mean, I think there's a different way to look at it. I mean, it, in, in, to the point that you made, there's always going to be a silver lining to anything that we do or don't do, uh, you know, for any reason. I, and you know, one of the things I always mention to physicians is, hey, you've, you've had a claim made. There's a lawsuit. There's really nothing we can do about it at this point. I mean, it, it's out of the box. The, we can't close the barn door and shove the horse back in. Let's look at this process as, as a learning experience. So obviously there's something that you did or it's perceived that you did that, you know, maybe we can correct. It may, it may be a medical issue. You know, this is something mm -hmm. they didn't know or didn't understand, or it may be a documentation issue. Right. You know, next time you need to go ahead and write out the word or, or type it in as opposed to pulling it down off the EMR or, you know, given some little abbreviation. So, you know, there's, there's, there's a positive to be gained in, in these cases in that often is, you know, half the battle, but a quarter of the battle to have them, the physician appreciate that no one thinks you're a bad guy. Um, no one thinks that you have horns going out of your head. You had a day at the office or at the hospital that someone else thinks should have gone a little bit differently for any, whatever reason that is, let's fix the difference or let's tweak the difference and, you know, fix the problem, magnify on the good. You know, some there are some plaintiff attorneys that didn't get that memo, uh, which is good people make mistakes, um, where their summons um, or the complaint will read things like with wanton disregard for the care of, you know, patient X, um, you know, Dr. Siegel maliciously, um, you know, disregarded the safety, you know, for personal gain. And when you read something like that, it's hard not it's hard not to be defensive. I think that oh, if, if it were presented a different way, such that even good people make mistakes and you, you know, you just had a bad day, but my client has been injured and the right thing to do is to help her move on with her life. I think it'd be perceived differently. Now it, it may still be, you know, the fight of a lifetime, but I, I think the tone sets the level of defensiveness from the very beginning. And I'm, I'm not sure that, um, many plaintiff attorneys have picked up on that. I, th I think that if you started with a softer tone, you may actually get to the right outcome for their client. Or they may get to the right outcome for their client um, and save everyone a lot of headache. But when you come out swinging, I, I think everybody should expect that there's going to be a cage fight. Oh, yeah, it's the old, you know, sugar and vinegar kind of analysis, you know, which one's going to attract more. <laughs> you know, we have a, you know, a couple attorneys down here that oh, one is since past um but a really really good friend of mine who was on the other side of the table and obviously he had to file lawsuits when he had to file lawsuits and he, he would file them but he did he preferred not to go to court he would prefer mm -hmm. he preferred to go to arbitrations and obviously there was some incentive for him to do that you know less expensive process uh for him quicker resolution but the way he would sell that to you know, the, the defense bar and, and the defense attorneys who took him up on that offer was, listen, we'll go into this and I'll set a ceiling on whatever money I, whatever money I get, you know, I'd rather close this file than keep it open. Um, and, you know, there'll be a decision that's made, but we're not going to have a judgment against the doctor. And this trial isn't going to be out in the public. You know, 
and I think he appreciated that you know the the physicians that 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 get sued don't want this laundry being aired out in the public domain. So you put this in a courtroom, you know anybody can see it, any anybody can get a record of it. So granted, you know I understand that he had the lawsuit. There was this arbitration process, but there was a desire to work with the opposition to make everybody as reasonably unhappy or as you know reasonably <laughs> happy as they could be. Um, and it was a good relationship. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I think you're right, Dr. Siegel, that uh, you know if, they, if the plaintiff's bar comes into it with a different perspective, and for that matter, a defense attorney as well, um, you know, and isn't combative with their client, the whole process works a little better than it otherwise would. Again, understanding that no one wants to be in the process, but we are in the process. The other point that's kind of interesting about the attorney, the plaintiff's attorney, who was supporting arbitration, keeping it out of the public eye, if I heard you correctly, you also said, look, we'll put a cap on the amount of damages that we're looking for. If I heard that accurately, the other subtle message it sends to the doctors that I'm not here to bankrupt you. I'm not here to take your home. I'm just looking for a reasonable amount for my client and will be within policy limits. That also sends, if that's if that's actually what he did, that sends another message that um, I'm not here to, you know, with scorched earth, I'm here to just help my client and not, you know, turn you into a, uh, into a cadaver at the same time. And, and, and absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, he, he knew the defense attorneys that that process would work with because he knew those defense attorneys would have that conversation with their clients and be able to say strong arm and twist their arm because that wasn't the case, but be able to at least prove to them that he is not out to do exactly what you said, Dr. Siegel. He's not out to take your firstborn child, your mm -hmm. car, your 401k. He just wants to kind of make everybody even. Um, and it, it went a long way. I had a great deal of respect for, for that process and in, in, in his, his offering up that opportunity. Let's talk about process because one of the, right after you get a summons, um, one of the first things that will happen are depositions, deposition of the plaintiff, deposition of the defendant doctor. Why don't we start by just describing and telling the audience was it, what is a deposition? I, many doctors have already been deposed, so they understand on a visceral level uh, what it means, either deposed as a witness or as a defendant. Uh, but for those who haven't had the joy of being deposed, uh, why don't you why don't you jump in and describe kind of broadly what the purpose is and what they can expect, and then we'll talk about some of the rules that uh, you've put together. Sure, sure Dr. Siegel. Yeah, the uh, at base uh, a deposition of plaintiff, of defendant, or of anybody for that matter is nothing more than a, a question answer session, um, but for record purposes. So you know, the, the several reasons for taking the deposition that the, as the rules provide in, in, in civil procedure um, is to understand the story of the opposition um, or the treating physician or, or the before and after witness, whatever the case may be. Um, if mm -hmm. it's plaintiff defendant, I as the defense attorney can't go out and talk to plaintiff Susie because the rules of ethics prohibit that. And I don't know what Susie is going to say, what her story really is. I've never laid eyes or ears upon her to, to see what kind of person she is, what her injuries are. And while the plaintiff's attorney might give me a very good story, um, in nine times out of 10, it's accurate. I got to see that for myself. So being live in person and having that person sit at the end or across the table from me, uh, does a great deal of good for the case to help me understand the person and what their claim is. Alternative, well, not alternatively, but in addition, um, it allows me the opportunity to, and the plaintiff's counsel as well from the defense standpoint, to lock in that testimony. So you know, when we get these cases, you know, we have to assume the case is going to be in front of a jury in a courtroom at some point in time in the future, although statistically that really necessarily isn't the case, but you need to anticipate that at the end of the day, you're going to be trying this case in front of six people. So taking that deposition allows me not only to hear the story, but to lock in that story so that they can't change that story as time goes on to make their case more favorable 
you know, in, in gilded up as years go by. So, so that would include try to do that. So that would include preventing surprises. Um, many, some of us grew up with Perry Mason, or at least Perry Mason reruns from many, many years ago, where there would always be a surprise in trial that changed the outcome. Always, that was how every Perry Mason show um, continued. Um, but in point of fact, that almost never happens because depositions, to the extent that they occurred before a trial, prevent surprises by locking in people to their story. Oh, yeah, R rarely are the surprises. I mean, the, the surprise, the, the surprises come only if someone changes their testimony, and then you're surprised. Why would you ever change your testimony? But yeah, these <laughs> these medical malpractice cases are discovered so deeply um, and, and so broadly from the time of filing up until the date of trial that for the most part, now obviously I don't know exactly how they're going to say it, but I know what the story is going to be and I know what each person's role in that case is going to be and generally what they might say. So um, really the only surprise at trial is, is the presentation. I know the facts and I know who's going to be giving the fact. So it, it allows us to, the deposition allows us to lock in that story. And then later on, if, if the parties or witness, for whatever reason, decides to shade their testimony ever so slightly or testified, you know, now the sky is, is blue as opposed to when you, when you gave the deposition, it was orange. I understand my allegiance, orange and blue. Um, that now we can impeach them with their prior deposition testimony. But that's, that. I look at depositions not only from locking them in, but the most important thing for me when I take a deposition is, is I want to meet who's going to be sitting on the other trial table in front of the jury. And is the jury going to like them or is the jury going to hate them? Um, because they're going to tend to side, you know, on the same fact, likable plaintiff, they're going to side with the plaintiff. Unlikable plaintiff, that same fact, they're probably not going to look at that, that fact as favorably to the plaintiff as he otherwise would have. And it applies with equal force and effect to the defendant. So I want to see who's going to be the plaintiff in the case and how are they going to, how are they going to appear? How's a jury going to appreciate them? So in my mind, that's really the most important reason for deposition. You know, speaking of likability, there certainly are some doctors who are extremely talented technicians, the best of the best, but their communication skills may be subpar. They speak in nouns and verbs only or, um, or, um, have others do their talking for them, um, I would imagine that that could put them at a disadvantage if they're talented but not likable. You know, the question is, how? obviously they're not going to do a personality transplant before deposition. How can or do you prepare these individuals so that maybe they're less dislikable? Maybe that's the right way to put it. That's a good way to put it. Well, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to take the, the spots off the leopard or the stripes off the tiger. Um, but, I, you know, I do appreciate that you know, the, the physicians are obviously scientists to some degree uh, first or second. There are people first, but, you know, they have devoted them, their profession to a scientific, scientifically directed field. And, and you're right. You know, they do speak in a, in a very brief. Um, they need to get things done. Um, and it's kind of linear. I know what my next step is going to be. I need them. So this is their fish out of water in my domain and I need them to be more personable. So, you know, I, and, and Dr. Siegel's kind of funny is, is I've, you referenced the Perry Mason moments and I think I watched the secondary ones, but I remember Perry Mason, but what I vividly remember is Marcus Welby. <laughs> yeah. So what I would tell my, my clients to listen, Who is likable, by I the need, way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I need you to be Marcus Welby. Um, you know, that's how we need you to come across. And you know, I've had a couple of physicians of late that looked at me like I had a third eye going out of the top of my head, and they go, "Who the heck is Marcus Welby?" And, and finally, I explain that to them. To them, but yeah, they again, it, it all goes. I think how they become Marcus Welby. And I'm not ever going to make a Marcus Welby, but I might get them closer to Marcus Welby than you know the Alec Baldwin char character, <laughs> and, uh, you know where that movie was. Yeah, I do. Um, is, is spending time with them so that they have a comfort in the process. And, and each physician is going to be different. And I, it depends on the physician on what I need to do to them or what I need to do for them. 
um, you know, sometimes if it's a trial, I might take them up to the courthouse and just have them sit in the chair and say, listen, it's not wired for anything. There's no button that's going to shoot you up from the roof. Um, you know, it's not going to shock you. Some of them are completely fine in that setting. Um, you know, sometimes it's, you know, how you speak, how you sit up, um, you know, introducing them, you know, I might show them websites of the person on the other side. And again, in the medical malpractice world, at least in my community, it is a very small network of some friends, some enemies, but for the most part, we're all collegial. And for the most part, we all get along is just talking to that the defendant. Listen, this guy is not going to bite your head off. If he makes efforts to bite your head off, then we stop the process. No one's going to come in and put cuffs on you or an orange jumpsuit or stripes and, and take you away. You just give them a level of comfort in the process that it's just simply going to be someone trying to gain information or gather information that may not be otherwise gatherable from the electronic medical record or the written medical record itself. And they need to kind of fill in some gaps. Um, obviously, there are witness preparation uh coaches and, and, and services um you know sometimes we utilize those but i think again those are much more the exception rather than the rule and, and at least my pro personal experience the way i reason i think that way is again a lot of my relationship with the client is time and talking to them regularly in email you know i put them in a, in a room or a business with a witness prep coach for the first time uh -huh. Sometimes that doesn't go so well, um, but you know there are some where they really need that maybe the first step or second step, and then we can kind of kind of take it from there. You know, I, I like the way you describe it as steps because I know that there's certainly there's no shortage of lawyers that will give you know 25 rules on how to present to a jury, and candidly, it's just too much to remember. And if you do it and don't internalize it. It ends up looking scripted. It looks fake, looks inauthentic. In, in one sense, it's almost like me trying to learn how to dance. Um, I mean, I if I have to remember 20 steps, um, all I'm guaranteeing is that my wife is going to make fun of me. I'll never pick it up. But um, I, I think if there are just a few salient points, the important ones for the doc to remember, that is possible to internalize and not not end up looking inauthentic and fake. I mean, the last thing you want to do is look like a robot that's trying to remember, you know, the, the 25 rules that were just given, you know, in terms of the proper amount of time for eye contact, who to look at, you know, whether you're fidgeting or not. Uh, some of this stuff can't be helped. I mean, really, you're just trying to do some element of damage control and hit the salient points so that they look pretty good, but maybe not perfect. Right. I mean, I, I tell... You know, in particular, in a videotape setting or whatever, uh, for the deposition, you know, I always tell them, male or female, hey, listen, you're not George Clooney. Uh, you're not, you know, pick your favorite actress. Um, that's not you. I don't need you to be you, be that person, because if, if you're that person, you're not coming across as you, and you're certainly not coming across as them. Um, you know, most doctors, you, yeah, most doctor. doctors explain cases every day to patients. I mean, they have to speak in a common language for either the patient or the family to understand. They, they've already got, you know, much of that skill within them. Um, it's just a matter of tapping into it and using it. Yeah, um, but you know, that's why I try to bring try to bring the, the point home to them that although you're fishing the water in the legal proceeding, this is proceeding, this is nothing more than what you mentioned, Dr. Siegel. You're sitting down and explaining medicine to someone who probably knows a lot more about it than the average bear. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, you're explaining medicine to this attorney just like you would explain it to Mr. Smith who's coming in for his first visit with you. Um, and you want to describe the medicine in simplistic terms. You want to sell yourself on this attorney, just like you're trying to sell yourself on that patient. You know, are they going to trust whatever recommendations you're making? So there's, I mean, it's, there's parallels uh, that the physicians don't appreciate until maybe they're told it and maybe they'll believe it. I hope they believe it after they've been through the process and they go, listen, it really wasn't all that bad. 
Yeah, they definitely don't want to be repeat offenders. Oh, by the way, now that you brought up um, Marcus Welby, I have to ask you two entirely unfair questions. But you get <laughs> tremendous props if you get e- even one of these right. So who was what was the name of Dr. Welby's partner? And I don't know if he ever made partner, but he certainly worked with him and rode a motorcycle. And then number two, the name of his nurse or admin. I'm not even sure what she was. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, I watched the reruns, Doc. I think I was, okay. you know, but yeah, you got me there. <laughs> I wonder if it was Dr. Kylie and then Consuelo was his nurse. I may be confusing it with an entirely different show. If, if that's the case, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm humiliated by by that. But um, I probably will, it'll probably be another 30 years before the opportunity comes up again. So I didn't want to miss it. All right. That's good. All right, Depo. So I've got a list of um, suggestions, rules, etc., that I stole from you shamelessly, and um, I have uh, I I use it almost as a Bible. So I'm now asking, I, now I'm asking for forgiveness as opposed for as opposed to permission to use it. But um, I honestly have never seen them all laid out in one place. And with your permission, if the viewers um, or the, the people listening to this are interested, I'll, I'll pop them in your direction so that they can get a copy of this. And honestly, I've Absolutely. not seen it laid out so crisply, but let's, let's just go through some of them. I'll, I'll articulate uh, the rule and let's just spend a little bit of time talking about it. Sometimes the rule may be self-explanatory and there's nothing to be said about it. Then we'll, then we'll move on. We probably won't go through all of these, but I just want to hit some of the highlights here. So um, rule number one um, or, or thing to remember, remember that you have no purpose to serve other than to give the facts as you know them, as you know them. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, big and maybe a hospital setting and, and you know this kind of goes back to the initial point i made that the physicians want this case or these cases to be over with quickly and so the thought process is if they wrap their hands around this whole case and regurgitate the whole case at time of deposition then maybe the plaintiff's attorney will appreciate that hey, there is no case here the problem is you know a lot of times this, this information you know is something that the physician normally wouldn't have the benefit of anyway. I mean, medical records or treatment may come afterwards right. relative to the incident in question. And, um, you know, sometimes they don't know the complete nuances of, of the case. Like for example, today, I mean, the, one of the issues was the administration of a, a alternative um, a blood thinning medication for a heparin-induced thrombocytopenia case that we're on. Well, mm-hmm. my doctor's records didn't reflect that it was, there was a bleeding event but there was a bleed event noted in a nursing note, although there was also a non-bleeding event noted, noting a nursing note at the same point in time. Right. And so, you know, my physician did not get that information from the nurse. He got it from another physician. And I, I said, the doctor, listen, you have to rely upon and telling your story at deposition time. You have to rely upon the source of your information to give you the information that you're going to give the deposition, not what you think someone heard from someone else who heard it from someone else. Stay in your lane because that way you won't make any mistakes and you overstepped, overstepped into a fact that you had no understanding of whether it was real or not. Um, that, that, that's kind of the, the, the take home point from, from A is, you know, I referenced earlier my defendant client is an is an actor in this whole stage production. You have a line. Don't worry about the other guy remembering his line. We're going to ensure that happens. You have your role. Take your role, and, and we'll put this all this piece of the puzzle together at the end of the day. So stay in there. Stay in your lane. That your task, your job, is to put it all together. But the doctor's role is is limited. It may, it may be broad, but it's not infinite, meaning that it's not generally, it's not the entire medical record with the story being told with the benefit of hindsight in retrospect. Absolutely. Correct. All right. Rule number B, never state facts that are beyond your knowledge. In other words, don't speculate. That's a good rule. Yeah. Yeah. I I find, um, yeah, one of the comments I make to physicians when they're giving these depositions is, you know, my perception having done this is people that have letters behind their name, you know, the proverbial, proverbial alphabet suit, perceive the need 
um, to know something or at least feign knowledge of something um, because, you know, they don't want to perceive, they don't want the, to think that the other side thinks that this gentleman, this, this woman is dumb as a box of hair. Um, so if, if the question is asked, they have the belief, well, I'm supposed to know it. It's kind of like, you know, maybe you're at the dinner with, with friends and, and someone asks you, Dr. Siegel, and I don't think you're, you're neurosurgery, you know, they ask you a, um, a radiology question, for example, you know, Hey, I got a picture taken and show this. You probably know enough about it simply because you're a physician to weigh in and comment upon it. And that's all well and good sitting at, di at dinner with, you know, several of your friends, but, in a legal proceeding, you know, at least here in the state I practice in, you can't testify outside your specialty. So, you know, when you start bleeding into somebody else's specialty, one, it's not permitted. Um, and two, you don't, that, that specialty really isn't necessarily within your medical wheelhouse and you may misspeak. Um, and depending on who the judge is, maybe that misstep is going to make it in front of a jury. And then the jury's going to go, wow, this guy really does not know his stuff. If he doesn't know his stuff now, is he going to, did he know his stuff back then when he was treating the plaintiff? So, you know, that's kind of a magnification of sub A, you know, stay in your lane. If you don't know something, it's perfectly fine to say, I don't know. Uh, I'd rather you say that as opposed to trying to establish, you know, and in fact, you don't know it. You know, there's a corollary to that in terms of words to use. And I, I've seen this. Uh, not infrequently, where a doctor will say, um, I always do X, Y, and Z, or um, I mean, they use the word always. And I prefer the term I generally, or it's my custom or my habit, because almost nobody does anything always. It'd be very unusual. And the, the minefield you're running into is that all you need to do is demonstrate one counterfactual and your credibility has been blown. So, um, there are some words that I, I try to avoid in life, like the word always um, is, is one that I try not to use. Um, and the word unfortunately I also don't use in life because it usually just demonstrates bad news and the people stop listening have to use the word unfortunately. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about in terms of depositions, but I thought I'd just throw that in there after I threw out uh, Dr. Kylie and Consuelo a few minutes ago. <laughs> As a distraction I mean, for you, but but that, you know that statement isn't 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 completely untrue, Doctor Siegel. I mean, I you want to stay away from absolutes because yes. there's going to be an exception to the absolute. So the always, the nevers, yeah, because I know the, the physicians live in kind of a world of gray. I mean, there's no black and white to any of this. God, that is such a true statement. It, yes, I mean, it, the 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 things that um, that are never vague and never muddy you can count on one hand. There's almost always some wrench that gets thrown in where you have to use judgment and the judgment can end up with a problem. Um, so yeah, I'm not a fan of using the word always or never, um, but to try and soften it just a little bit to conform to the actual practice uh, of medicine. So let's move on to um, um, rule number three, never attempt to explain or justify your answer. You're there to give the facts as you know them. Discuss. Yeah, I mean, this, this is um, what I often tell the physicians is there's, there's basically five places of comfort in the quiver of answers that I give them. Um, yes, no, I don't know, I don't recall, or I don't remember. Um, and those are the places they can always go back to to find an answer. Um, but like you said earlier, I don't want them to come across as being robotic and, you know, just, you know, monosyllabic responses. Um, so occasionally if you, if you need to explain something, explain it, but don't elaborate on it. And where I see the justification or the explanation is particularly on those hot topics in a particular case where it's obviously the critical issue in the case. It's obviously the, the, the reason why the case is being litigated and the physician is kind of on her heels um, because that care is being you know, focused on and criticized. So they want to explain why they did what they did. Well, you know, let's let the question come to us first before we need to explain anything. Um, you know, don't, don't lay all the cards out on the table. We will have that opportunity. Um, the more that you're explaining or justifying, um, 
it's kind of like, you know, he doth protest too much. Well, if you start saying a whole bunch about something, well, maybe there is more fire here than, uh, than smoke. And, and the opposition is going to start delving into that subject matter even more. And chances are, if you're explaining or justifying, you are giving more than the yes, no, I don't know, I don't recall, or I don't remember answer. And you're probably going outside of the outline that the plaintiff's attorney probably prepared and giving him a, another line of questioning that he didn't contemplate getting into. Um, it, Particularly when people start speculating, giving estimates. So, you know, the common question is, um, how many times have you, um, like this is with experts, how many times have you testified for, um, for a plaintiff? And the answer is, well, I don't know. And they'll say, well, is it, is it more than 10? Is it more than 20? Is it less than 50? I mean, they'll keep going till they, till they nail you down. So if you open up the door uh, with a speculative answer, it's unlikely that's going to be the end discussion until you've locked in with an answer. And then at that point, there may be a counterfactual down the road, which then beats up on your credibility. And it's often more with experts than with the defendant, but I'm sure it applies to all protagonist uh in a in a med mal case yeah i mean once once you testify to anything you know and more often than not this really doesn't you know pull all the way through you know if, if it's an i don't know then the answer is i don't know and then you know, given your example i know they're going to try to you know whittle it down somewhat and make it more finite but if your first answer out of the box was i don't know then your second answer and third answer and there shouldn't have to be a fourth answer because if Plaintiff's counsel has probably abused the privilege at that point. Yeah, asked, um, but be consistent. Asked and answered, <laughs> I would think. Yeah, yeah, that's where you come exactly. in. Right. Yeah, which goes to listen to your attorney, which means that um, take a pause before you answer. There's no reason not to think about the question before giving out an utterance. But if your attorney jumps in and objects, pay attention to the objection. You you may not have to answer, or if you do. Uh, may be qualified. So, um, you know, it's helpful to just view this as a team event as opposed to a soliloquy. Right. I mean, it's kind of one of the things I explained to physicians given the deposition, I think this may be in the, the paper at some point, is, is approach this as though you're dictating, um, you know, a note. Um, because you literally are. You're speaking and that court report is taking down everything that's being said verbatim, whether it's right, wrong, or completely incorrect, whatever comes out of the lips of the attorneys and the physician, it's making it to the record. And I would suspect that, you know, if a physician is still dictating these days into their own system or for a transcriptionist, they're probably tr dictating relatively deliberately right. so that Dragon picks it up or the, the transcriber or the transcriptionist can understand what it is that they're saying. Well, if they're testifying deliberately, and, you know, with some degree of paced cadence, they're thinking about their answer as it's coming out of their mouth. Right. If it's, if they're saying it fast, they're probably not thinking all through about their answer. Um, so I say, you know, take a couple seconds before you give an answer because it doesn't give me an opportunity to do my job um, and protect a bad question. More importantly, protect a potentially bad answer. So, and particularly you know, if the question is confusing. So, um, not infrequently, um, a plaintiff attorney or any attorney will ask a question that has about four or five subparts to it. Um, and a better way for to think about that is to hopefully get it reframed so it's just one question at a time. Um, I think the last thing you want to do is get uh, get off balance with a complex question that you're not even sure what you know what they're asking and jumping in. That's actually a very good time to pay attention to to your attorney and let them object and force the plaintiff attorney to um, to simplify the question so that it's it's more easily answerable. And in, in kind of the corollary corollary to that, Dr. Siegel is you know don't give me a compound answer. I understand that you want yep. to get out of here real quick, um, and you know, if, don't start at A and give me all the way to the Z when the question doesn't call for you know half the alphabet. <laughs> you know, I, I think the mindset is if I tell if if I the physician tell you my whole story, 
then I'm going to be out of here more quickly. I mean, that it's actually, you know, reverse, the inverse is actually true. I mean, I think if you tell the whole story, if I'm taking the deposition, I probably haven't thought about three quarters of what you just told me, but now I have, and now I'm going to start asking questions about it. So, the, you know, you need, the position needs to approach the question, short, simple, one topic question, just like he should give his answer, short, simple, one topic answer. You know, the the opposite is also true, which, I mean, I think what you're saying is be crisp. Um, but the other thing is don't necessarily be a jerk to the plaintiff attorney where, I mean, you do want them to work, but not in such a way that you almost look combative uh, to a jury. Um, I know we're talking about depositions right now, but the same behavior would apply, meaning that, you know, tell your story. You don't need to give the full story. Keep it short. Keep it brief. Keep it crisp. Um, but don't come off as being an argumentative uh, jerk that is holding on to every nugget of information, requiring the plaintiff attorney to use a crowbar just to extract the most basic of information that you would otherwise divulge anyway. Correct? Yeah, there's there are several ways to say the word yes <laughs> or no. Um, and what, there are several ways that it can be looked at as being, this guy's being a jerk or wow, this guy's being really nice. Um, and, but it kind of goes back to that robotic thing. I mean, you know, I, I can tell the physician, I need your answers to be, you know, the yes, no, I don't know, et cetera, et cetera. And I can't sit there with my hand up your back and move your mouth, but you physician need to have some level of judgment in these answers to know when a yes but answer is acceptable and it explains but doesn't elaborate and you need to have the judgment to know when a yes period it should be the only answer um so i you know on the yes no answers you know i, I tell them listen you can you can draw out a yes so that it sounds like you're being polite and trying to be responsive to the question or you can give me a curt you know really quick yes period exclamation point and then you sound like a jerk you're, I need you to give me the long extended yeses and maybe the long extended no, not the short, Kurt, get me out of here. I don't want to listen to these questions anymore. You're bothering me. Now, what, what about the circumstance where a plaintiff attorney will try to nail you down to a yes or no, and that's all he wants to hear, but the correct answer is something in between the gray zone, and you really do want to get out the truth. I mean, do you just say a yes or no will not answer your question, or how, how and I know it may be very fact-specific, but broadly, how would you guide a doctor in that, in that thicket? Yeah, I think that's one of the situations where, you know, if I have worked with the physician long enough beforehand and have developed a rapport with him so I know, you know, how he's going to respond to certain questions, if I have developed a good deal of faith in that physician to kind of give him maybe not the keys to the entire kingdom, but at least the keys to the house, listen, doctor, you for those answers that call for that yes and maybe a little more, I'm going to have to rely upon you um, because we have worked well enough and we've worked long enough where I have an imminent faith in you're going to be responding appropriately. There are other physicians where I say, if it calls for a yes or no and you want to explain it, please just say yes or no. And at a break, when I get to take my turn answering questions and you feel like your story hasn't been told sufficiently, let me then ask the question because then I know what you're going to say and I can somewhat more control the process. Yeah. Breaks are actually quite good. Um, and if, if the attorney says out loud, it's time for a bathroom break, there's, there's probably a, a subliminal message there that should be picked up on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I tell physicians, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful that not a lot of them smoke, but, you know, if they have a small bladder to begin with, I want it to be really, really, really small so that, you know, the breaks can be more natural than unnatural. Um, and, you know, we can sit there and talk about how either well they're doing or how poor they're doing, how we need to get this train back on the tracks. So make yeah, sure you load breaks up on, are critical. Yeah. Make sure you load up on coffee and Lasix, a diuretic beforehand right. so for frequent trips exactly. to the bathroom. <laughs> Here's one of the most important rules and it's, it's really just a matter of tone than anything else, which is do, do not let the opposing 
attorney get you angry or excited? I mean, it's so obvious, but it certainly bears repeating. And I know you've seen. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, this is probably one of the most important things. And, and, you know, depending who has the case from the opposition, I mean, obviously on the plaintiff's bar, they would rather resolve the case tomorrow uh, with a resolution as opposed to trying the case. But there are some attorneys knowing, you know, the personality makeup and their dynamic. They're probably going to be the one that would rather try the case mm-hmm. than settle a case, you know, ego driven or whatever the case may be. It's those attorneys, you know, who are going to try the case. Well, this probably applies equally as strong with those that don't think they're going to try the case. Um, they want to rile you up, and particularly in those depositions where it's being recorded via video. Mm-hmm. Um, because rest assured, if they see that doctor blow a gasket um, and running off the rails, that probably one of the first two witnesses they're going to call in their case in chief is going to be the videotape deposition of Dr. Smith yeah. so that they can get the jury going in the right direction for the plaintiff, the wrong direction for the defendant. So, you know, I, I've been telling the physicians, you know, listen, the, the one thing that the plaintiff's attorney wants to see is he wants to see what's going to make you sweat and he wants to see where your hot button is. And depending who the, who the, depending on who the attorney is, once they find that you know, schism or break or crack in the personality, they're going to stop because they know, I know what's going to get this guy at trial time. Um, if they want to keep pushing the button, um, you know, to kind of probably work up a resolution more sooner than later, they'll keep at it and they'll keep at it. Now, obviously, from the defense attorney's standpoint, it's my job at that point to take the break and throw water on the fire um, so that you know, cooler heads will prevail. But I tell the physicians, listen, I know you're going to be irritated at the process. I know you're going to be irritated with the gentleman or woman sitting on the other side of the table. Bite off chunks of tongue and you can scream to your heart's content after this deposition is over. But I don't want you to do it right now because it's all in the perception. They, I need you to establish for them that you are a likable individual and that you have no reason to tell anything but the God's honest truth and to justify to them and justify to the jury that what you did was reasonable and a judgment call that anybody else would make or likely would have made. And the ultimate irony is that most doc- as it relates to patient care, most doctors are cool under pressure. That is, they you know try and um, keep their emotional um, concerns in check as they're taking care of the patient. If they can just translate what they're comfortable doing as it relates to patient care. Not all the time. Some people have anger management problems, but most doctors, you know, are fairly level-headed when it comes to taking care of challenging patients in a challenging environment, um, which, which translates to don't take the bait when an attorney tries to rile you up as frequently family members may, or how the nurses take care of a patient. Don't take the bait. Your job is to just get through this and to be liked by the jury, tell the truth, not fabricate anything. And uh, then after the plaintiff attorney is finished with you, you'll get the chance to resuscitate. Um, and I think your job, your, your goal is to make sure that the job of resuscitation isn't impossible. Exactly. If they've, given, if they've driven too far off the rails and put the train in the water, yeah, then we have a problem. Um, yeah, it's, I, I know money is, is very important, um, you know, but at the end of the day, I, I do try to explain to physicians in your nine to five job, and it's not nine to five, but lives are hanging in the balance oftentimes. Right. In my arena, it's, it's a dollar, it's a check um, that's hanging in the balance. Two completely different things. And I would, you know, I'd argue that it's the, the neurosurgeon, doctor, whatever job is, probably has a lot more importance in the grand scheme of things than this. Not to say that this isn't important, um, but the, the stress level that you all deal with in your daily lives has is, is got to be imminently greater than what we deal with. Yeah, part of it's just keeping it in perspective. I think it's just an unfamiliar environment for most uh, physicians, particularly when they're in it for, for the first time. So unfamiliarity breeds... Um, a level of discomfort. And I think once you settle in and you realize you're in it for the long haul, then the question is, 
How can they help you do the best possible job? How do they get their story told? And and then is it likely or possible that uh, this case may be dismissed or or maybe a settlement is recommended? Why don't we migrate away from from depositions? And and by the way, um, with your permission, I, I would make some of these uh, rules about depositions available. Um, they can just our listeners can get in touch with us at info at medicaljustice.com and we'll send you out uh, an email of this. And by the way, if you forbid me from doing this, I'll, I'll take care of that on the back. Oh, no, please. So, I, I, okay. I, I'd welcome that. Thank you very much, Dr. Siegel. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O, news, at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews, at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336-358-5587. We offer discounts for large groups, and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.